The United States vaccine program continues to pick up speed after a slow start. Both Peru and Ecuador are bracing for elections, but what does it mean for the region? And Norway's national football team red cards the Qatar World Cup. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Monday the 5th of April and I'm Carlotta Rubello. I'm joined here in London by Monocle 24's head of radio, Tom Edwards, and by Monocle 24's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Welcome both back to the show. We're coming to an end of right a, a glorious weekend, long Easter weekend here in the UK. Were you up to something fun? Fernando, uh, tell us what did you do over the past three and a half days? It was a delightful weekend, I have to say. Not only Easter but it was a very nice and sunny uh, day yesterday. I mean, st- still a tiny bit cold, you know, Calot, I'm not going to lie here. Uh, but yes, I did a- eat a lot of chocolate. For me, that's what Easter is about. I'm not such a traditional person, but of course I do like an Easter egg. What about you, Tom? Was there an Easter egg hunt in the Edwards household? Yeah, there was an Easter egg hunt. There was an excessive amount of chocolate consumed, not all of it by by me, some of it by the younger members of the Edwards household. And then earlier this morning, I actually struck out again with the uh, took the kids out into the into the woods just to exercise them in the morning like dogs. And actually, it it, it was sunny and snowed at the same time. Very unusual. Well, an unusual Easter, but nonetheless, one, I hope it's the last one we have to spend indoors, or at least without being able to go for a lovely Sunday pub lunch. Lovely having you both here on the show with us. Let's start today's programme in the United States, where nearly 40% of all adults have now received at least one dose of COVID-19 vaccines, a prospect that almost seemed unthinkable given how slow the US was to respond to the beginning of the pandemic. Could a change in administration be at the core of this change in approach? Well, earlier we asked precisely that question to Linda Chavez, the former White House advisor to President Ronald Reagan and chairman of the Center for Equal Opportunity. This is what she had to say. I guess uh, night and day would uh, describe it in two words or three words. Uh, there, of course, um, you know, I think President Trump does deserve some credit for having gotten the manufacturing of vaccines taken care of uh, by promising to purchase uh, vaccines. Uh, I think he was able to spur the development very, very quickly. And of course, there was also the regulatory process in getting the vaccines approved. And I think he does deserve credit. I don't think he was, um, you know, totally uh, without some effect. However, Uh, He did not, uh, even though he took the vaccine, he did not encourage his followers to take the vaccine. And although the vaccine rates are uh, very encouraging right now, uh, the one group that seems to lag in taking vaccines uh, is Trump followers. They are not as, uh, as keen on taking the vaccine as others are. Linda Chavez there speaking to us earlier on the briefing. Tom, Biden's vaccine rollout polling at 75% approval right now. Does this go just to show, you know, how different the pandemic is being managed and perceived under the new administration when compared to uh, Donald Trump's management? 
Well, yeah, I think, you know, clearly, as Linda said, Trump did get some things right, even perhaps inadvertently. I and mean, there are some loose parallels, I think, with this more kind of free market approach that we had in, in, in this country, um, which has helped to facilitate a very effective vaccine rollout. That, that seems similar in the US. I think Biden... What's encouraging about this is it gives him broader political momentum. I think it was always going to be the case that the uh, pandemic, the fallout from it, both in terms of the health emergency and the economic uh, constraints, were going to be the things that defined at least the first half of this first term of, of Biden's government. And I think inevitably, though, however well he's polling now, it, it, it casts the, the agenda sort of further ahead to, to midterms. And I think, you know, what is going to be important is not really how the public views Biden's performance in these early weeks, but it's going to be how do the Democrats do in the midterms? And, you know, everything in history tells us that they will lose seats in both houses. And then, of course, it makes it much more difficult for him politically to be an effective operator in the second half. And then that prompts a further question, which is what happens then in 24? You know, if he's having to pass on uh, the, the sort of the, the, the Democratic mantle to, to Kamala Harris, how is she going to perform? And then to come back to Trump, who remains this kind of elephant in the room, will he sense opportunity then? And I, I know it may seem um, entirely unfair on Biden in the early weeks and months to already look to, you know, does he does he compete again? And how will he even fare at the midterms? But I think politically, that is what is going to be important. He'll be encouraged by the polling, but he will be as aware as anybody, certainly people, you know, within the beltway, that what really matters is how the polling goes in those midterm elections. And uh, Fernando, the fact that, you know, uh, over 40% of all adults have received one dose of the vaccine and we are in such a different situation now that what we were, you know, even just six months ago when we look at the United States, is this the sort of thing that really highlights how much the image of a country can change, be it for good or bad, uh, due to its leader? Because the way the US is seen now in the world is very different. No, and, and what surprised me, Carlotta, is how swift was that change? Uh, of course, I'm not saying, you know, Biden is going to be reelected or, or anything, but it's been a solid start uh, for him. I mean, look at the vaccination rollout, but it's not only the vaccination rollout. I mean, his stimulus package. In fact, I mean, if you look at the polling, even some of Trump uh, supporters like that package. I'm not saying they like the man, they like Biden. Uh, and also the job rates are on the rise in the United States. And I think he's image itself, Biden. That's the difference as well. We know that uh, Trump used to like to tweet there was a controversy a day. I mean, we all know that with Biden is going to be a very different story. And that kind of give, gives me hope in a way because, you know, just look at my country, Brazil. I mean, we are having a terrible moment with our image uh, worldwide. But I wonder if we have a new leader that, you know, at the world stage, people might consider that, that person efficient if things can change and, and almost the, the last four years can be forgotten. So I, I find it quite interesting, this uh, change of uh, image perception as well. Well, Fernando, you mentioned there your home country of Brazil and you're turning us to the right part of the world now as we head to Latin America, where Ecuador and Peru will both go to the polls on April 11th. Ecuadorians will vote on, in their presidential runoff, while Peruvians will hold general elections for presidential tickets and all members of Congress. Uh, Fernando, can you start by setting the scene for both of these elections? Telling us about why they matter so much. Well, it's going to be quite an exciting weekend if you like Latin American politics. Let's start with Peru. I think the most interesting thing here about Peru is that 
there are seven candidates polling between 8 and 14%. So we basically have no idea who is going to the second round. And they come from different political affiliations. I mean, if you want to look at the favorite favorite, uh, we have Yoni Lascano with 14.7%. He's a left-leaning uh, you know, man. He wants more state intervention. And then you have the market-friendly Hernando de Soto with 13.9%. But again, then we have Veronica Mendoza from the left, the daughter of Alberto Fujimori, Keiko Fujimori as well, a former footballer, George Forsyth. So it's quite interesting. And I think that shows that I do believe Peruvians at the moment, they're quite disillusioned in a way with, with politics. I mean, they changed so many presidents in recent years. They have an economic recession. We were talking about vaccination rollout. I think less around 1% of all Peruvians have been vaccinated, which is super uh, low. So, you know, it's that's why it's so fragmented. There's no savior here. So it'll be very interesting to see who is going to the second round and who is going to support who uh, as well at the runoff. And, well, you've asked about Ecuador. That's a more straightforward one. We have the leftist Andres Arauz uh, against the conservative banker Guillermo Lasso. I do believe Arauz will win. I'm uh, not sure if, 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 if by a lot. Uh, but the interesting thing here, he is a protege of Rafael Correa, the former Ecuadorian president, uh, which again, even members of the left, some of them, they don't like uh, Correa. Uh, and, and I was talking even to to Tom Edwards, he was mentioning. Uh, we have uh, Jaco Perez, the indigenous leader. He almost actually went to the runoff, but then Guillermo Lasso at the last minute managed, and he got the vote of this new left, liberal, young, and progressive. And I wonder if that vote will probably head to arouse or not. But it will be very interesting dynamics there, Carlotta. Well, let's just hear now a clip from Natalia Sobrevia Perea, who's a professor of Latin American history at the University of Kent. She spoke to us on The Globalist earlier today and told us how these results might impact the wider region. They're talking about a, a mini move to the to the left if uh, Arauz were to win and um, someone like Veronica Mendoza were to go on to the second round in Peru, which she hasn't managed before. So there there is some expectation to see what happens. And now there is going to be another election uh, on Sunday, but that was cancelled. It was the, the referendum in Chile for a new uh, constitutional convention. And uh, due to the pandemic, this has changed. So the pandemic is also playing uh, a role in this. And nobody really knows exactly what the influence is going to be. Is this going to be a protest vote and people in Latin America saying we're fed up with a system that is so unfair and so skewed for minorities? Or uh, these uh, people who are wealthy are going to manage to keep control of power, which is uh, what they have managed to do in Peru so far. That was Natalia Sobrevia Pereira speaking to us earlier on The Globalist. Uh, Fernando, what do you make of Natalia's comments there about the impact this will have in the, these two uh, votes will have in the wider region? Well, one thing that I agree with Natalia, I do think there is a little wave to the left in the continent. I do say little wave because it's not every single country. But if you look at the previous elections in Mexico, Argentina, Bolivia, uh, you see the crisis among some some right-wing leaders, for example, in Chile and Brazil's Bolsonaro. So, you know, maybe that pink wave that we were discussing in the noughties, where a lot of South America, basically almost the whole of South America was, uh, you know, uh, commanded by uh, center-left leaders, that might be the case again. So, uh, again, we have to wait and see Peru. 
it's quite interesting, Carlotta. I've never seen an election like this with seven candidates with potential to be the next uh, Peruvian president. Well, finally today, the Norwegian national football team recently took a stand against human rights violations in Qatar before one of their World Cup qualifier matches. There has been debate within Norway about whether the national team should boycott the 2022 World Cup over poor conditions for migrant workers in the country. Uh, uh, Tom, uh, in the meantime, other footballers in Germany, the Netherlands and even Denmark are now following Norway's lead in calling for potential boycott. How significant is this move? Well, I think it kind of gets it gains significance as more high profile footballers and indeed footballing nations uh, begin to add their voices to the mix. I think one of the things about uh, Norway is that although they've got one of the undeniable uh, superstars of football at the moment playing up front in Erling Brought Holland, you know, they're, they're not going to win the World Cup. And it's a lot easier, I think, if you're probably on the margins of the kind of uh, knockout stages to articulate these kinds of, of sentiments. That's what the cynic in me says. Um, but to be honest, as a fan of football and the power of sport to do good more broadly, despite it often being not for being, you know, a billionaire business and all the rest of it, I, I commend the Norwegians. And I, I, I think it was interesting that it started with uh, Tromso, a small club, I think one of the most northerly clubs in all of Europe, um, and then some of the other big teams in the top flight in Norway began to drive this this process. It's asking the question, it's flagging these hypocrisies, uh, certainly within FIFA, about, you know, they talk about the power of the game to do good, but they don't often deliver that in terms of their management of it. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see if others follow suit. I think it's very unlikely that we'll see a boycott of the games. And in some senses, that may be a good thing. I think it's better for people to participate to ensure that, you know, the tournament is valued and that people then use that forum and that platform uh, to, to put these questions in, in the shop window. There are lots of examples of sportsmen and women using their soft power, if you like, to affect change. I mean, if we go back sort of generationally, you know, think of what it meant for the apartheid regime when um, cricketers wouldn't go to play or cultural luminaries wouldn't perform there. And and indeed, look at the opprobrium that was heaped upon those teams who, who did tour during that period. So it goes to show that sport can play a role. I commend the Norwegians for doing it, but I'm not sure it will make that much difference. And not trying to play here a devil's advocate, but the process of selecting Qatar to host the World Cup in 2022, you know, it was a couple of years ago. It was a long while. This is not something new, knowing that Qatar will be the host nation. So is it a bit too little too late for Norway and all these other countries to voice their anger and their protest now rather than during the bidding and selection process? Well, yeah, I think a lot of people will point to the fact that it's been telegraphed for, well, it's, it probably goes back almost 10 years. And there are a host, Carlotta, look, let's be clear, there are a host of other um, sort of non sequiturs here. Lots of the players or some of the players who play for Norway play for clubs who are themselves sponsored by other Gulf states. And, you know, I think it's reasonable to say, you know, if you're going to highlight, you know, the uh, failings of the of Qatar as a uh, country in terms of dealing and ensuring human rights for those workers operating there. What about you know the United Arab Emirates that has similar problems, and there are players uh, who play for teams who are sponsored by Emirates Airlines, for example. So, listen, I don't think it all stacks up. But, you know, we're having a conversation. It will maybe make some of the power brokers, certainly in FIFA HQ, 
probably not in Qatar, but maybe, uh, you know, maybe look for some robust answers. I think if these things prompt a discussion, at the very least, that's something positive. And we shouldn't knock footballers. A lot of these guys are, you know, in their early 20s. They've been playing football. A lot of them didn't even finish schooling. You know, we always talk about how lacking in engagement they are with big questions in the world kudos to them and I, it, I'm not surprised frankly that it's the Norwegians whose players have always struck me as being more intelligent certainly than their brethren here representing the three lions in England I don't know what Faye would say about about the the Selecao. I don't think many Brazilian players will be articulating anything I could be wrong but good but good luck to them I think it's it doesn't matter if it's too late it doesn't matter if it doesn't change anything it matters that they're asking the questions and that's all we can uh, that's all we sometimes that's that's all you can do Fernando, I'm also keen to get your take on this story. And I guess to ask you as well, if you think this might indicate that, you know, future nations wanting to host uh, big sporting events, be it the World Cup or any other big sporting events, will have to, you know, start looking at their own record first. I guess that's something that should have already been happening. But could, um, you know, a movement like this uh, lead to at least a bit more of uh, uh, looking to their own actions first? I think it's happening actually slowly. I remember even, uh, you know, when Brazil hosted the Olympics, I mean, it wasn't the same accusations against Qatar, but they were saying, oh, I mean, the stadiums were built with corrupt money, among other kind of kind of things. And, and I, I agree with Tong in one sense that I, I still think it's best for the event to happen. And I wonder if perhaps even a protest in the country or during the event could be even more effective. Because in the end, what needs change here is FIFA and, and the way they handle, you know, the vote among other things. Because it is a shame as well for sports fans. I mean, if everyone boycotts the World Cup, I, I, I don't think that's going to be a good solution for everyone. And there's also the danger of being accused of hypocrisy, like, oh, you can't play in Qatar, but then you will play in Belarus or you will play in China. And then it starts kind of a Pandora box of, you know, every country has a lot of problems. I'm sure some countries, they have worse problems for sure. And I think you should be able to protest. Uh, and I wonder if protesting at the event might be a solution as well. Well, that's all for today's late edition. A big thank you to Tom Edwards and Fernando Augusto Pacheco and, of course, to our studio manager, David Stevens. I'm Carlotta Rebello here in London and the late edition is back at the same time tomorrow.